Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 9, 35 to chapter 10, verse 15. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it, and if a household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, as... Um, as Pastor Eric was praying, I was also in Dallas this week. It was the uh, national meeting, annual national meeting for our denomination. And there's a lot I could share. I'd love to talk to you uh, about what we did uh, while we were all together. But I will say this, it is true. Texas barbecue is very legit. I had some of the best barbecue brisket I've ever had. So it was a good week in, in Dallas. Um, I also want to um, reinforce something Eric said. We do have paper forms. Uh, we are taking nominations for the Office of Deacon, the Ministry of Deaconess, and I would love to hear from uh, maybe eight to ten more of you, members of Trinity. Uh, we do have a number of nominations that have come in. I'm really encouraged by that, but please, if you haven't had the chance, uh, take the time today. Uh, to respond and to nominate uh, people for this ministry of, of service. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 through 12, and we've been focusing in on uh, chapters 8 and 9 the past few weeks. And in chapters 8 and 9, if you have it open, you can kind of just glance at this. 
what the writer, uh, Matthew, has done, he has collected together 10 of Jesus' most powerful miracles. It's kind of like a highlight reel. He's put them back to 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 back. Ten miracles. Healing a leper, curing the sick, the oppressed, the blind, the mute, even raising a little girl from the dead. He's been touching the untouchables and the outcasts. And each one of these ten miracles, each one individually, but together in their cumulative effect, gives us this incredible answer to the question, who is Jesus? What is he like? And what has he come to do? Jesus is essentially saying in these miracles, let me show you what my kingdom is like. His message, his favorite thing to say was the kingdom of God has come. And he says, in these miracles, in these encounters, I'm showing you, I'm giving you previews and pictures of what my kingdom is like and what I'm all about. Healing, restoring humanity, bringing people into wholeness. The writer, Matthew, he's putting these all back to back for a purpose. And he's saying, if this is true, if this is who Jesus is, who wouldn't want to follow somebody like that? Somebody who wants that and has the power to do it. So that's Matthew 8 and 9. We're in a transition. We get to chapter 10. There's a transition. We move from seeing Jesus in action to hearing Jesus teach. That's how Matthew is written. I know, kids, you're in here with us, so I want to give you, um, I want to give you an explanation of how Matthew works, and it goes like this. It goes action, teaching, action, teaching, action, teaching, action, teaching. It goes back and forth like that. Five times, kids, can you say it? Action, teaching, action, teaching, action, teaching. That wasn't very loud. I got more for you later. That's the structure of Matthew. So chapter 10 is the second discourse, the second body of teaching of the five discourses in Matthew. First was the most famous, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. His second, as Elizabeth read to us, as we heard, is a call to mission. He tells his followers, what you have seen in action, what you have seen me doing, now you are a part of it. That's what chapter 10 is all about. My mission is now your mission. And he gives the reason for that, the reason for the mission. He gives some instructions and he talks about some of the obstacles which we'll be looking at the next couple weeks. So in our series, which we've entitled, Why Follow Jesus? The answer that this text gives us, chapter 10 is, why follow Jesus? Because he gives us a mission worth living for. He gives us a purpose that is greater than ourselves. He gives all of his followers a part to play in God's plan to restore all things, to restore broken people to God. And until we put our mission, our own personal mission, into that greater context of God's mission, we won't really know why we are here. Here at the end of chapter 9, right before Jesus says, you're going out to all the towns of Israel, that's your mission. Before he sends them out, he gives them 
the reason for mission. This reason given helps us with some of the most difficult questions concerning Christianity. Some of those questions are around mission. We live in a pluralistic world. Our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers believe all kinds of different things than we do if you're a Christian. That's our reality. And so some questions that are hard are these. Why is Christianity a missionary faith? Why did Jesus actively seek to call people to conversion, and why does He tell His followers to be about that same work? Why can't we let everyone be and seek their own way and seek their own truth? Why is their mission? Chapter 9, 35 through 38, answers these questions at the root, at the source. We're going to spend most of our time in that passage. It gives us the reason for Jesus' mission. If you're here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you may wrestle with some of those questions. And if you don't know the reason for mission, you may think Christian mission is motivated by Christians thinking we are right and you are wrong, we are better, or we look down on other cultures and peoples and we're here to tell them, Our way is the right way. Those are all the wrong reasons for mission. So you need to hear this text. And my Christian friends, if you don't know the why behind mission, you won't really participate in Jesus' mission, not in any sustained way. And if you do, you will likely participate for the wrong reasons. And you will do it in the wrong ways, not like Jesus. And in the end you will end up doing more harm than good. So we need this passage. The reason for mission we see is not a command or some kind of special status or reward we get for participating in mission, but we here see God's own reason for mission. Here's what I want to show you this morning. Here's what I want to talk about from this text. First, we see what God sees. What does God see? What does God feel about what he sees? And thirdly, what does God do about what he sees and what he feels? Kids, I'm going to give you an outline. I want you to participate with me in this. It's going to be a a body action outline, okay? Here's your outline. Remember this. See, point to your eyes. See, feel, point to your gut. We're going to talk about that. Point to your gut. See, feel, and do. Hold your hands out. See, feel, do. I have adults doing more of the hand motions than the kids. Thank you. Thank you so much. First, what does God see? Look at verse 36 with me. It says, he saw the crowds. Who were the crowds? We said this before, but the crowds are like a main character in the gospel of Matthew. They're referred to often as a group. The crowds were this mass of people. They were drawn to Jesus. They were interested in Jesus, but they were uncommitted, and they were on the fringes. Now, for us, we almost always see crowds as a sign of success, don't we? The bigger, the better. But Jesus never got excited about crowds as a metric for his mission. He didn't look out and say to his disciples, what are our numbers today? Are we up or are we down? 
something that becomes very clear early on, we've mentioned this before, is that Jesus' mission was not to build a crowd, not to become popular, not to rise in ascent to power, not to go as big as he could. Rather, his mission was to make disciples, to make followers, and that is slow and small work. Jesus often left the crowd to focus on a smaller group. And he often told people that he healed, did you notice this, to keep it private. He did incredible things for people, and he said, don't tell anybody about this. Keep it between us. Most of the time, those people didn't listen to him, and they spread the news anyways. He said, don't share this on Facebook or Instagram. Don't post it. But they couldn't help it. They kept doing it. As we read on, we learn later that the crowd that loved him later turned on him and called for his crucifixion. So we might then expect Jesus to look out at the crowd. He sees the crowd. He sees them all out there on the fringes and say, here's what I see, a bunch of fickle, shallow, easily swayed, what's in it for me, people? This unnamed, unthinking mass of people. When you see a mass of people, let me ask you, what do you see? Uh, we live in a part of the country, a part of the world, where there are masses of people. We live in a county of 3.1 million people, next to a county of over 10 million people, next to another county of over 2.5 million people, Riverside County, next to another county of over 3.1 million people, San Diego County. That's a mass of people. Now, when you encounter that mass of people, what do you see? Yesterday, we tried to go to the beach, and we went a little bit late, and we wanted to go to a beach that had some space for us to play, and we encountered a crowd. It was Saturday. It's the summer. It was kind of a no-dumb moment, but we hit the crowd, and we had nowhere to park. We kept trying to find the perfect place, and it took us like an hour to figure out where we were going to land to go to the beach. So when I saw the crowd, I said, these people are getting in my way. All I want to do is go to the beach. I wish they weren't here. If it was just me and the beach, then I would be happy. We have many moments where we encounter the crowd. What does God see when he sees the crowd? This is the first reason for mission. It's really the starting point. It's what God sees. When he looks out at the crowd, the masses... When God sees the seven billion people on the planet, what does he see? Jesus, God in the flesh, shows us. He sees people who are like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean? He's using a common analogy in Scripture. It was understood in his day, used many places in the Bible, of the people of Israel, Numbers 27, Ezekiel 34, 1 Kings 22, Zechariah 10. It's a metaphor for leadership and for those in the crowd who are following. When we see people, what do we see? We see their actions, what they're doing. We see their appearance. And based on that, we often classify people, worthy, not worthy of my time and attention, cool or not cool. Beautiful, not beautiful, successful, not successful, good, bad, right, wrong. That's not what God sees. 
the first thing Jesus sees is not what people are doing. The first thing he sees is who or what they are following. He looks at people and he says, who's in the lead in their life? Who is their shepherd? Are they following him or someone or something else? What does this mean? And this is very, very important for the reason for mission. What does this mean? It means our sinfulness, that's there. Our sinful actions and failures, it's not the first thing that God sees and notices when he looks at us. It's not what motivates him to mission. No, he sees sheep without a shepherd. What happens to sheep without a shepherd? They are vulnerable and in great danger. No protection. They are hungry and can't find food on their own. So they have no satisfaction. They're hungry. And they have no direction. They're lost, prone to wander away. Sheep without a shepherd. <clears throat> because the kids are in here, I wanted to bring back um, an old friend of mine, an old story that I shared with you last summer. Some of you, it, you'll, you haven't heard it, so it's brand new to you. Let's share um, a picture of a sheep without a shepherd. Okay, some of you remember Chris. This is Chris. He has a name. Uh, this is a real sheep. <clears throat> this is not Photoshop. He was found in Australia wandering away from his shepherd from his fold. They don't really know how long he was out there, but as you can see, he became a monster, something that you would run from. Somebody was out hiking in the Australian wilderness, just like the most dangerous place in the world, and they saw this like beast come out and took his picture. That's Chris. He was carrying so much weight in his wool that when they found him, they said, we don't know how he survived. We don't know how he carried this all around. And he was on the brink of death because he couldn't carry that much wool around. That's an example of a sheep without a shepherd. He had no direction. He had no protection. And he was about to run out of a way to have satisfaction of eating. He had no one to lead him. And so he wound up in all kinds of distress and dejection. Jesus says, sheep without a shepherd. He looks at them and says, I see your distress, that you are harassed, weary, and troubled. He sees dejection, helplessness, confusion, and discouragement. He sees all the consequences in our lives of not following him as shepherd. And when he sees this, he has to do something about it to bring his sheep back. God's reason for mission is he's the only shepherd who can give us direction, protection, and satisfaction. You know, there's some examples of this that we've already seen that I want to reference right now, some, some real-life stories in action. Uh, the, the writer of this gospel, his name is Matthew. He wrote this. We learned about his story a few weeks ago. Pastor E.C. shared his story. He was a tax collector. Last week, we learned of a woman who was suffering from a chronic condition, 12 years that made her unclean and an outcast. When it comes to Matthew, people said, I see a tax collector. This is what I see. 
a man who is a sellout, he stole from his own people for the occupying empire, the Romans. He's a compromiser, he's greedy, he's a betrayer. When people saw the woman who reached out and touched Jesus' robe, they saw a woman who was unclean, unwanted, untouchable, and desperate. But Jesus didn't see that. He saw sheep without a shepherd. He saw Matthew and he said, I see you, Matthew. I don't see a tax collector. Let me lead you. I see someone I want to tell my story. He said to the woman, courage, daughter. I see you as a daughter. Your faith has saved you. I see a courageous example of saving faith. That's what everyone should see. Quick application. You will not have a reason for mission, my Christian friends, unless you have a right answer to this question. How does God see me? When I think I'm at my best, he sees a sheep prone to wander, follow the crowd off a cliff. He sees something like Chris, the sheep. When I'm at my worst in all my sin and waywardness, what does God see? That, as we answer that question, how does God see us? When we think we're doing great at our best, he sees a sheep. When we think we're at our worst, he sees a sheep. We have to answer that question first in order to be able to answer questions like this. How does God see people who have different sins than mine? Ones I might think are much worse than mine, who have different issues than mine. Ones that I might be tempted to regard as easy to handle and deal with. What God sees leads him to mission. But this passage doesn't only tell us what God sees, it tells us how that affects his very heart, how it awakens and it rouses a part of him that is an essential part of his character. It's the part of his heart, it's the part of his character that moves him to act. It's in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. He felt compassion. Compassion is an emotion that comes from the deepest seat of affection in a heart. It's, and kids, here we go. Here's your word. I've been teaching you a word any, anytime you're in here, so here's your word. You've already heard it before. It's a repeat. Splunkna. Remember that one? Say it with me. Splunkna. It's the guts. It's the bowels. That's the Greek word for the guts and the bowels. That's where the affection lie. That's where compassion comes from, from the deepest part of where we feel. It's to feel pain with another and to long for that pain to be lifted. Compassion is the most repeated emotion of Jesus. Matthew 14, 14, later on in this gospel, when he went ashore, ashore he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Something the Bible says about God. At the deepest place of God's heart is compassion for sinful and broken people. Exodus 34 says, The Lord, 
is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a core part of who he is and has been and will be for all eternity as a God of compassion. And this means God never leaves behind, never sets aside his compassion for broken, hurting people. That's at the core of his heart. He cannot. It is who he is. And we see it in Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion. Remember the crowds had issues? Remember the crowds were sinful? But it doesn't say here he felt anger at the crowds when he saw them. Because how many times had God told them to repent of their sin? It doesn't say he felt disappointment because by now shouldn't they get it? Hadn't he done enough? Hadn't he shown them enough? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say he felt condemnation because these people just needed to know how bad they were and how much they deserved punishment. It doesn't say that. Now, God does get angry. He experiences disappointment, and he is a judge. But these things are never and can never be separated from his compassion, his deep compassion for broken, sinful, and hurting people at the core of his heart. When he sees people like sheep, he feels compassion. That's where mission comes from. That's where God's mission comes from. So here's a principle of mission, God's mission in Jesus' name. If you don't feel compassion, if you don't feel compassion on others in their brokenness, in their sinfulness, and in all their mess, then don't speak to others on behalf of Jesus. Don't act for others in Jesus' name because you will inevitably miss represent him to others and do more harm than good. Although we could take that too far, it might immobilize us because we can never have the compassion of God in our own hearts that he has for broken and hurting people. But the truth remains. Francis Schaeffer, the quote is in the beginning of your bulletin. He said it like this. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. If the why of mission is God's compassionate heart, if that's the source and that's the spring and the fountain from which all of it flows, then we understand the indictment of Jesus, of Jesus toward the religious leaders of his day. That these were the pastors. These were the teachers. These were the spiritual leaders. And so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself here, and I say this with fear and trembling. What they saw when they saw people, what they felt when they saw what they saw, was so, so far from what God saw, was so, so far from what God felt, that they harassed people in the name of God and beat them down and left them broken and helpless to myself, and to my Christian friends. May it never be. May it never be true of us. Instead of compassion, they did feel condemnation. Instead of identification, I'm a sheep too. 
They felt condescension, which led to separation, which left them in isolation from the very people they were called to love. They were called to teach. They were called to point to the shepherd, God himself. And the church is always in danger of this. Let's come back to the test. I'm going to build on what I said in the previous point. What does God feel towards me when I'm at my worst? You know, this week, if you just totally blew it, if you sinned, all of us, if you failed, if you messed up, if you feel beat down and lost and discouraged, if you feel this way about your faith, can I ask you this? What's the answer to this question? How does God feel about you? Do you know the answer? It's compassion. His heart aches and beats to see you free from all of this. What God sees, what God feels, the reason for mission. Thirdly, what does God do about what he sees and feels? What did God do? If you look at verse 35, it's a summary of what God did. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. What does God do? God sent his son to teach. And Jesus taught. He said, here is the life you were made for, Sermon on the Mount and other places, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, good news for sheep who so needed it. Good news of what he will do. He's come to reign. Not bad news of more stuff for us to do. Not bad news of all we've done. And he came to heal the broken and the hurting. This text points to um, many, many of the texts that describe the people as sheep without a shepherd in the Old Testament. I want to point to one of those, Ezekiel 34. I think that's particularly in view in this text. What does God do? Ezekiel 34 tells us what God planned to do all along, and Jesus is carrying this out. Mine's really small, so I'm going to step down here so I can read it. I want you to pay attention to all the places where it says, I will. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Here's God's mission plan. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep. And have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. This, verse 30, is the declaration of the Lord God. You are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. Protection, satisfaction, direction. Ezekiel 34 says, that's the plan. I myself will provide those things for people who so desperately 
need it. Well, how do we get there? The crowd, the masses who followed Jesus around were uncommitted and stayed back and were on the fringes. How do we come to experience the protection, the direction, and the satisfaction of the shepherd? Two things are needed. We have to say two simple things. First is, I am a sheep. I am a sheep. I cannot lead my life. I get lost. I am vulnerable, wandering, straying. I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, like we say. I'm not smart enough, good enough, and I never will be. Now, this is hard for us to say, hard for us to admit. I am a sheep, and we need to say to Jesus, be my shepherd. I leave behind all other shepherds. Everything else I follow to follow you. Take the lead. I look to you. And this is hard. Maybe even harder. What God sees, what God feels for us in all of our sinful wandering, all of the mess of our own making is the reason for the cross. What God does in Christ. To feel compassion Genuine compassion means you take on the feelings of another into yourself. It costs you something. You take on the pain. You take on some of the mess. And the cross is that to the nth degree. Isaiah 53 says, we are all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've all turned our own way. But the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. For us to do the hard thing, to say, I am a sheep, be my shepherd, God has done the even harder thing, the hardest thing. Because of what he saw and what he felt, he took on all of our sin so that nothing would stand between us and him. And all we need to say is, I am a sheep, be my shepherd. What God sees, what God feels, and what God does about what he sees. Those are the reason for mission. Let me just share a few closing thoughts on application before we move to the Lord's Supper. What does that mean about what we do? The mission that Jesus calls us to as his followers. Well, there's something else God sees here as he looks out at people who need him as a shepherd. In verse 37, we see what that is. Jesus changes the metaphor. Instead of talking about sheep, he says, I see something else. I also see a harvest. And as one scholar translated, he says, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is huge. That might be the best way to, de to describe it. I see a huge harvest, Jesus says. I, I see a huge harvest of people who are waiting and longing to hear good news of a shepherd who can lead them to what they are looking for. Out of all their suffering and sin. I see, he says, a huge harvest of people ready to follow my leadership. People who are done trying to lead their own lives, who are burnt out and broken from following everything else. I see a huge harvest of people who would long to hear what God sees when he looks at them. Who would long to hear what God feels about them. Who are ready to say, okay, I am a sheep. Be my shepherd. Notice 
about this harvest. It says it's God's harvest. It's his harvest. The planting, the growing, and the tending is his work. He is the Lord of the harvest, but he uses workers to gather in this harvest. He says the harvest is huge, but the laborers and the workers are few. There's the mission. We don't have time to get into um, chapter 10, verses 1 through 15, but here Jesus, we look at this in the scope of all Scripture. He's sending out the disciples to reclaim the sheep of Israel first in order that they then can be sent to the nations as was God's plan all along. So he's reclaiming the land, the people, and the vocation of Israel who all along were to receive God's blessing and be a blessing to the nations. So he says, go first to Israel as the 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, we are recreating the vocation of humanity to join me in my mission. So what do we do? See, feel, do. First, Jesus says, we pray. Final two thoughts. Without prayer, friends, we will not see what God sees and we will not feel what God feels. And we won't do then what God did in Christ. Pray. We've been saying this a lot as a church. We want to be a church of prayer. Let me say it again. We can't say it enough. There will be no mission without prayer. The verb that says send out, that verb could be translated cast out, thrown out. It's the same word for exorcism. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to cast out and throw people out into mission because there's so many reasons why we want to stay to ourselves. Mission won't happen without prayer. Pray and then be ready to be the answer to that prayer. As we look at verses 5 through 15, there's so much freedom in, the, in this mission. I would summarize it like this. The receptivity and the readiness of people is not something we can see. We don't know who's ready for this, but God sees it. He tells us to go to all, speak good news, show compassion to everyone he puts in our path. Do it with grace. You're not getting anything out of this. You're giving. Do it by faith. Trust in God to provide. And you never have to be forceful or obnoxious. If people are not receptive and they're not ready, what does it say? It says, move on. The harvest is huge. There are other people whom God wants you to, in simple but in courageous ways, speak good news and show compassion. We are sheep. He is our shepherd. If you feel broken, if you feel distressed, dejected, discouraged, the good news is come to him. He will receive you and he will use you to bring others to him as well. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, our good shepherd, thank you for telling us what you see when you see us. It's often not what we see when we see ourselves. Thank you for telling us what you feel about us, even when we're at our worst, that you are compassionate to us in our deep need. We need that compassion. And so may you flood your people even now. 
with conviction and with assurance that you feel that compassion for us even now. And may we come, may we not be too proud to say, I am a sheep. And may we not hold back, may we not be afraid to say, be our shepherd, lead us. You know what's best, you know where we should go, you know what we need, may we trust you. May we trust you to lead. We pray that in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.